0: We have a crew member aboard who's showing signs of stress and fatigue. Reaction time down nine to twelve percent. Associational rating norm minus three. That's much too low a rating. He's becoming irritable and quarrelsome, yet he refuses to take rest and rehabilitation. Uh-huh. Now he has that
1: right, but we found yeah, crewman's right ends where the safety of the ship begins. Now that man will go ashore on my orders. What's his name? James Kirk
2: bridge to all decks wow i sure do love saying that because that means it is time for a brand new episode of enterprise incidents with scott and steve i'm scott mance
3: and i am steve morris and i feel like we need a little bit of levity in our life i feel like we need to i don't know scott relax and take a little time off maybe have some shore leave Surely sounds like a great idea. You know what? The crew
2: of the Enterprise sure has been through a lot in the last three months. They are going to let their hair down, and and so are we as we do our deep dive into an episode that I think we can describe as a fan favorite. But is it a superior episode, and how does it hold up after fifty-five years? We're going to get into all those things when we talk about shore leave, uh, Steve. What are your initial thoughts on this episode when you first
3: saw it? What are your memories? Well, this has always been the one of the fun episodes. And it's always been one that tonally, I think particularly for where we are in the first season, this is one of the biggest tonal shifts. I mean, mm. we've now gone – To From some really, really serious, heavy episodes, and a a surprisingly high percentage that are really tragic, to one that's kind of light. And even though there's a quote-unquote death in the middle of it, (laughs) it, 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 it's never taken that seriously, and it's so nice to have a lot of fun. And this is what I'll tell you, watching it this time, as we said many times on Enterprise Incidents, I had a whole new epiphany. And that Mm -hmm. has been the growing understanding of this guy named James T. Kirk, who I thought I knew. And the more I think about him, the more I realize I didn't know him at all. And I'm really excited to talk about that in this episode.
2: Well, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who are listening to Enterprise Incidents for the first time, this is what I'll tell you. When Steve Morris has an epiphany, boy, (laughs) does he have an epiphany. I gotta tell you, his epiphanies have led to our very, very best conversations here on Enterprise Incidents. And I cannot wait to hear (laughs) about maybe a few epiphanies between the two of us that we have had about this episode. Because like you, Steve, rewatching it for the the sake of Enterprise Incidents, knowing that we are gonna do a deep dive, uh, certainly has made me reevaluate my feelings for this episode. But what I will say is that I always felt like Sure Leave was a fun episode. There there is no other episode like this in the original series. Sure Leave, I think, represents Star Trek firing on all cylinders. It's a the culmination of everything that we had seen up to this point during the production of Star Trek. But it is also, like you pointed out, Steve, so tonally different from everything else that preceded it. And this is an episode in which the tones seamlessly shift during the course of this episode. This is an episode that is, it's more science fantasy than science fiction. Mm. And that was a problem with the network. And we'll get to that in a moment, but I love the wild range of tones that this episode has. I love how open it is because with the exception of Miri, which was shot on a studio backlight, this really is the first true episode that was shot out on location on two locations. There's a great score from the amazing Gerald Freed, his very first score for Star Trek. You have that awesome, almost five minute fight scene between Kirk and Finnegan, yeah. which is a, a an amazing fight scene beautifully choreographed you learn so much about the background of our of our captain james t kirk we have another love interest for mccoy but my personal memory of this episode steve is that even though i had seen it quite a few times throughout the 70s in syndication it was in 1981 okay all right What i remember about watching this episode in 1981 is that shore leave is the very first star trek episode that i recorded on my Betamax.
3: I don't know how you remember those kinds of specifics. That's so amazing to me. Well, you're, you're talking to, to a person who <laughs> has an, an affinity,
2: shall we say, for a movie release date. So uh, when it comes to Star Trek, I remember the great details like that. So what happened was Star Trek was on every night at seven o'clock on Channel 17, WPHL Channel 17 in Philadelphia. And then... In 1981, they moved it to 1130 at night. And, well, that was just too late for me because I had to get up and go to school every day. So the only day I could really stay up and watch it was Friday nights. But then when my dad got our first VCR and in his his infinite wisdom, he got a Betamax because he knew that the quality was better but they were also more expensive. Yeah, they were more expensive, which is why the Betamaxes obviously uh, ran out commercially. But so I had set it up and I learned how to use it. And one night I set it up to record. And, you know, back then I, I I knew that there was an order to Star Trek, but I didn't have that order memorized. So I set up the timer to record at 1130 PM. And then the next morning I went down into the basement before I went to school and i just wanted to watch the teaser to see what episode it was and that episode was shore leave <laughs> so shore leave was the very first episode of star trek that i ever recorded on the on the betamax on the vcr and so i got into this pattern where i would set the timer record the episode go downstairs the very next morning watch the teaser and then when I got home from school, I would rock, watch the rest of it. <laughs> so that was uh, that was a blaster for for quite a while, I would say a couple of years. But that was my first uh, real, real introduction to Shirley because I could now watch it over and over again wow. when I wanted to. Wow. I, I, do you still have these Betamax tapes? I have one of them, not the one with Shirley, which is really too bad because I would have been such a personal, you know, such a a cherished memento, such a, a valued cher- memento for my child. But I, I do have a couple of uh, uh, videotapes, a couple of cassette tapes from when I held it up, but you know, this is an episode that, I, I mean, when you talk to other Star Trek fans, they really love it. And it's like the first, like sort of full on comedic episode that they yeah. did n- not including like Naked Time, which had its moments, but this was an episode that around the time that they were filming, Sure, leave. So the good news, Steve, was this. Star Trek got great news. The cast, the crew, the producers, Desilu Studios, NBC got their midseason pickup for Star Trek for a for a full season. So great news, everybody. We still have jobs lasting us for the rest of the season. Now the bad news, my friend. <laughs> so the budget per episode up to this point was one hundred and ninety three thousand five hundred. Starting with Shoreleaf, the budget per episode went down from this point on to $185,000. So it lost $8,500 a week per episode. And this episode cost (laughs) $199,654. So all the money, Steve, that they saved doing the envelope portion of the menagerie They had to uh, lose almost $15,000 of that because Shirley went so far over budget. They filmed the episode between October 19th and October 27th, 1966. It took seven days to film, uh, one, one day over schedule. And it was the 18th episode to film, but it was actually the 15th episode to air. And it did so on December 29th, 1966, making it the last first run episode of the series to air in 1966, was written by Theodore Sturgeon. And you probably recognize that name because Theodore Sturgeon also wrote the very, very classic top tier episode of Star Trek called a mock time Wow, kind of makes sense when you look at the tone of Shirley sure and the tone of a mock time, really out there episodes, both of them. Now this episode was directed by Robert Spar. It was his one and only star Trek episode. Robert Spar had done a lot of TV, uh, 77 sunset strip, the wild wild West voyage to the bottom of the sea and Lassie. This was his only star Trek episode because For one thing, he took too long to set up his shots and his directing style kind of rubbed some of the actors the wrong way. They didn't really like him, but Robert H. Justman was very happy with his work, but because it went one day over schedule and the other actors didn't like him, that kind of sealed his fate. Now, here's the thing about Robert Spar: He was killed in a plane crash in 1969. Oh, wow. While scouting locations for a shoot, the pilot was also killed. But Steve, his passenger, who survived with, with very serious injuries, but he did survive. Are you ready for this? I didn't know this until I was doing research for this episode. Robert Spar's passenger was Jerry Finnerman. Oh my God. The cinematographer for the first two and a half years of the original Star Trek. Jerry Finnerman was with Robert Spahr in that plane crash. Thankfully, Jerry Finnerman survived with grave injuries, but he still did survive. And, uh, you know, what a what a, a tragic end for Robert Spahr. But Theodore Sturgeon, not only did he write a mock time, but he was a book writer, a science fiction writer, a a noted science fiction writer, the kind of science fiction writer that Gene Roddenberry went after to to write for Star Trek, to, to give credibility to Star Trek as a science fiction series. The irony being that, surely, his first episode that he wrote was really more of a science fantasy, but he wrote the book, uh, More Than Human. He wrote the It short story. He wrote for TV. He wrote for The Invaders and Land of the Lost. But uh, the other notable, very, very, very notable aspect of Shore Leave is that it was composed beautifully, I have to say, by Gerald Freed making his very first score for Star Trek. He also did the scores for Cat's Ball, Friday's Child, A Mock Time, and The Paradise Syndrome. But you got to agree that the score for this episode is just magnificent the way it it, it too shifts tones, just like the aspects of the episode. So Gerald Freed, Absolutely, an, an amazing composer. Uh, he also scored the films "The Killing" and "Paths of Glory," both directed by Stanley Kubrick. Wow. He did Yeah, yeah, he did two Stanley
3: Kubrick. Those movies. are two great movies, too. I mean, I like both of them a lot. "Paths of Glory" is one of the great war films of all time. I mean, it's an unbelievably powerful movie.
2: Did you do any of those films on Cinefiles? Nope. We, um, maybe we, you we, should. <laughs>
3: yeah, we, we we talked definitely talked about Paths of Glory when uh you know when uh, an actor passes away we tend to try to do a movie to honor them and when Kirk Douglas passed away it was between Paths of Glory and Spartacus and we finally decided well, we got to do Spartacus. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah. but Paths of Glory is a fantastic movie.
2: Well, well, that that would have been enough if he just did two Stanley Kubrick movies and yeah. like you know the, the Star Trek episodes, but he also did. He also did the score for the original Roots miniseries from 1977, wow. plus its follow-up miniseries, Roots, The Next Generation. And he did – you're not going to believe how many episodes of Gilligan's Island Gerald Fried scored. <laughs> Are you ready? Go, go for it.
3: <laughs> 51 episodes of Gilligan's Island. It's, and- it's, I'm sorry. If someone had told you <laughs> that – Kubrick's <laughs> composer for Paths of Glory was also on Gilligan's Island. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Isn't that, I mean, on. <laughs> that is crazy. But but he also did 45 episodes of The Man from U.N.C.L.E. Gerald Freed, oh, you're going to love this. So back in 2012, when the 15-CD uh, box set of all the music from the original series was released, uh, it was – every single note ever recorded for the original series. It was like the Holy grail of star Trek. One of the most significant releases for the original series since the very first videotapes came out in the early eighties. So, so even though some of the music had existed, now you got all of it. And to mark the occasion, to mark the occasion, they had an event at the Egyptian theater in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, where they showed two of the episodes that Gerald Freed scored, including, of course, a mock time. Right. And in between the episodes, Gerald Freed, who was still with us, he came out and he did a little Q&A with the moderator, and he played his bit from the Paradise Syndrome with the flute. Remember mm. that part of the score, yeah. you know, that opens the – so you're sitting there watching this, this composing legend – play music from the original Star Trek series live. It was a moment I'll never forget. I believe it was Jeff Bond uh, moderated the Q&A because he was one of the producers on the uh, box set of the music and also did the liner notes. Uh, But that was a a hell of a night.
3: I I just want to point out one thing that I I know all of our listeners know, and we've mentioned already several times, that they reuse these pieces of music over and over and Mm -hmm, over again. mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I just want to... That means that, that that a piece that might have been composed for Muds Women or a whole bunch of pieces that are in shore leave, they might appear in more episodes than characters of Star Trek. More episodes than Riley, certainly. Probably certainly. more episodes than uh, Yeoman Rand. There's some pieces of music that maybe they were used 20 times. They're like just huge, huge parts of the show.
2: Absolutely, and and you know when you get to watch the series as often as we did, and you watch the episodes where they use stock music, you know. And I know the episode that it was originally composed for. That's when you know that you really are doing like a, <laughs> a deep dive into Star Trek when you can tell the episode where these reused scores originally came from. Now, now for an episode that was really outside the box, for an episode that I, I feel just exuded so much confidence, like when you're watching these episodes in production order, the, the series just became something very, very different when Gene Kuhn became the day-to-day producer and Roddenberry took a, a step back as, an ex, as the executive producer. And I think that that this episode in particular, surely Leave, feels so much like a Gene Kuhn episode. Yeah, I think so too. Despite the fact that there were so many problems with the writing of this episode that Roddenberry went to the set, the Africa USA set, where they filmed all the stuff at the Glade Mm-hmm. And he brought a typewriter with him and set up a table. And he was rewriting scenes on the spot because wow. there were so many problems with this episode. And this story outline was you know, written by uh, Theodore Sturgeon on May 10th, 1966. He wrote a first draft teleplay that was in June. And then he did a, a rewrite in which he changed the name from Shirley to Finnegal's Planet. Finnegal hmm. was the original name of Finnegan. But then when he did his second draft teleplay in September, he changed it back to shore leave. Then Gene Kuhn did a polish on October 14th. He did a rough step outline on October 18th, but then Gene Roddenberry rushed revised pages while the episode was being shot on October 19th, 20th, and 21st. And the reason why Roddenberry like had to hightail it to the set was because there was a crossing communication because everybody was 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 dealing with memos. And the network was initially concerned that the script was too surreal, that it was too much science fantasy and not enough science fiction. So he was going to have a change and he was going to tell Gene Kuhn to have a change, but then Gene Roddenberry was burned out. He went away on vacation. And then Gene Kuhn did his rewrite in which he actually played up the fantasy elements of it. And uh, that's why Gene Roddenberry had to go out and, and rewrite mm. scenes on the spot. And Roddenberry was not a fan at all of the giant rabbit scene. But by the time he realized that that was actually happening, the scene had been filmed and it was too late. But I just think that despite all the writing challenges, it's a
3: fantastic episode. Agreed. Would you like to know some of the things going on in the world while they were filming this thing? I, I can't wait to hear what was going on in the world. <laughs> so, as you said, it was filmed between our, October 19th and the 27th of 1966. On October 19th, Bobby Orr, one of the greatest hockey players of all time, played his very, very first game in the NHL. Uh, on the same day, this is a really important moment in Hollywood. Paramount Pictures, which was on the verge of bankruptcy, was bought by Gulf Western, and this is really the beginning of what we would call corporate Hollywood, where big, huge corporations became involved in these studios. What's interesting about the Paramount one is it's also right at the rise of Robert Evans, one of the great studio executives of all time and someone responsible for all sorts of stuff. So Paramount, where Star Trek is being shot, is being taken over by uh, a huge, huge corporation.
2: You know, what's interesting, Steve, is that Paramount, you know, in 1966, when this episode was being filmed, Paramount was right next door to Desilu Studios. Like the whole Paramount lot, as we know it on Melrose Avenue right now, it was actually only half the size because there was the Paramount side and there was the Desilu side. So the, the year after Gulf of Western merger, you know, this announcement happened, Lucille Ball did what she feared that she was going to have to do because between Star Trek and Mission Impossible, she was bleeding money and it was bankrupting the studio. So she sold Desilu to Paramount and they basically knocked down the walls between the two studios. And there was actually a ribbon cutting ceremony where, you know, Lucy like cut the ribbon to say, oh, you know, Paramount's now this whole studio. But internally, Lucille Ball was just
3: devastated that she had to do that. It's just – it's just – it's what's crazy to think about that is how – Important. how much more important mission impossible and star Trek are than <laughs> practically all the other things at television at that time. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. But, it, but they were also bleeding money. This one's tragic. And I knew very, I really knew nothing about it on October 20th in Wales, which obviously is a huge uh, coal mining area. There is a slag heap, which is just a big bunch of coal and rock. And, and it's sitting right above a school, and on October 20th, it collapsed in a massive avalanche, killing 116 school kids and 28 adults. Oh, my goodness. That's tragic. That's just, just awful. A massive. I just can't imagine the scope of that kind of a tragedy. You know what? If, did you do you watch The Crown? No, I've never watched it. Okay, because The Crown on Netflix,
2: they actually had an episode that dealt with that tragedy. And and I, I, you know, I knew just from history that that had happened. But to see it played out in this episode of The Crown, which is an amazing, amazing show. That's uh, right.
3: Yeah. Interesting. Um, On October 23rd, Che Guevara left Cuba. And this is obviously one of the most important people in the Cuban Revolution, a person that is controversial by any standard and Mm. folks with extremely strong feelings everywhere. And under assumed name, he flew to Moscow. And then under another assumed name, he flew to Paraguay. And on a new assumed name, he flew to Vienna, then to Bolivia. And eventually he was killed in Bolivia on October 9th, 1967. So this is the beginning of the last phase of Che Guevara's life. Unbelievable. of life um, on October 25th, the People's Republic of China successfully fired their first nuclear missile.
2: Mm, mm, mm,
3: and you see mm. that is a moment of completely changing world politics from that point forward. Lyndon Johnson visited Vietnam for the first time, South Vietnam, on October 26th and October 27th, the last day of filming shore leave. Our crew and cast could go home and sit down in front of their television sets and watch. It's the great pumpkin Charlie Brown for the. Oh,
2: wow. That's so great. Oh my gosh, what a week. Like, look at what was going on in just one week while they were filming. A star trek episode i mean like you know you're driving the work you know you're driving to the set maybe you're driving to vasquez rocks uh for, for part of <laughs> right. this episode you know and you gotta you gotta put the radio on and you're listening to to the news uh, maybe in the morning on am radio and you're uh, on your way to uh, to film a star trek episode and that's what's happening uh, awesome stuff
3: uh shall we jump into the show let's dive in to shore leave So we start on the bridge, and what I find so interesting is, in a weird way, this is the situation in our first pilot in the cage, which is we have a tired crew, and we hear there's a landing party down checking out this planet, and Kirk's back hurts, um, and <laughs> I love the setup of Spock has walked over to him, and unbeknownst to Kirk, a, a yeoman, Yeoman Barrows, is rubbing his back, and he's going, oh yeah, right there, a little harder, push there. Take it in I must have. And then he realized it's not, Mr. Spock. Thank you, Yaman, that's sufficient.
2: <laughs> you know what's interesting, Steve? In the first, I would say, 30 seconds of this episode, you pick up so much yes. about not just Shirley, but about the direction that Star Trek is now going. For one thing, it's, it's, it's worth noting that in the original version of Shirley, we see the Enterprise orbiting this, this mysterious planet. They're going, the Enterprise is going from right to left. And up to this, uh, with the exception of Mirror Mirror, you know, with the uh, ISS Enterprise, where the Enterprise is flying from right to left right. after the ion storm, this is the only episode where that happens. And Robert Spar just wanted to shake it up and show something a little different, but he had to use a distant shot of the Enterprise. Otherwise you could have told that it was inverted and you would see, you know, NCC-1701 right. in reverse. But the other thing, that that I really picked up on it and appreciated more is just how vibrant it feels, how the cinematography, Jerry Finnerman's cinematography, it's different now. The bridge is brighter. The colors are more vibrant. They pop better. The music by Gerald Freed is more upbeat and, you know, hate to use the word again, but, but vibrant. There's a confidence, there's a confidence to shore leave that is immediately noticeable, Maybe sparred, no pun intended, to the director's name by the mid-season pickup that they got. Maybe the Gene Kuhn just really just brought something new and fresh to the series. But from the beginning, you could tell that this was going to be different, that Star Trek was going to be a different show from this point forward. And you can just see how much the Enterprise crew feels more relaxed with each other, certainly, than they had up to this point. Their guard is
3: down, but Steve... Perhaps too much yeah. in this episode. Well, I think one of the big tonal shifts is that while there are fun things that happen in earlier episodes, like at the beginning of Naked Time, Star Trek up to this point has not been fun. Right. You know, it's not. And this right from the very beginning, as you point out, tonally. We're being light. We're having, there's a really light death touch rather than the heavier touch that we've seen before. And right away, we hear that the crew is tired and that Kirk is tired. After what this ship has been through in the
0: last three months, there's not a crewman aboard who's not in need of a rest. Myself accepted, of course.
2: You know, Steve, the funny thing is, you know, the way that we've been thinking about Star Trek chronologically as canon, which I think just opens opens so much to a uh, 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 to a new analysis of Star Trek, so so they talk about how the crew has been through a lot over the last three months. Well, let's look at what the yeah. crew of the Enterprise has been through in the last three months. Captain Kirk himself was split into two people. He was tortured, uh, uh, you know, by the Thanos field. Uh, you had the battle with the Romulans. In balance of terror And you had to fight Not just one But two diseases In Miri In the Naked Time You're damn right They've been through
3: a lot In the last three months And you're damn right That they need This shore leave Well the one thing That's fun That I I would add to it Is the one person Who says I don't need a rest What was the last thing He did He was just on The Galileo 7 And he had his Worst failure ever And it's just like (laughs) Spock seems a little Bit cocky Totally he does Considering what He's just been through Uh, Kirk heads off To his court And we go down to the planet into the most beautiful, idyllic setting we've ever seen on Star Trek. And partially, because you point out, we're actually out on location now.
2: You're out on location at Africa, USA, which is a wildlife preserve about 40 miles north of Los Angeles. And look, Miri... was great to the extent that they were shooting on this back lot where they right. shot the Andy Griffith show and so many other things. But it was a studio back lot. Now you really are out in the open and the paradise-like setting of this episode just opens it up so much. And plus with the tone and the score and the more relaxed feeling that the Enterprise crew have with each other, like – Everybody feels like everything's falling into
3: place, like Star Trek, which surely is really starting to hit its stride. And we see Sulu and McCoy, and they're talking about this planet that has no animals, no people, no worries. And I have to say, I think DeForest Kelly really shines in this episode. Mm. I think you see all sorts of stuff that actor was capable of that we don't get to see very much going forward. But man, he's he's just really, really good. I agree completely. This was a great episode for DeForest Kelly.
2: It showed, showed great range, despite the fact that he is kind of missing through, through a good yeah. portion of it. But you still feel his loss, and that's the key. And the, the great thing about the scene is the chemistry between George Takei and DeForest Kelly. You can see that everybody's feeling more comfortable with each other. You could see that even though this is a very atypical episode of Star Trek – I still felt like they were able to, to go a little further with things and their chemistry and their dynamic was more fully realized. And this is a beautiful scene because you're, you're seeing these two very tired crew members, you know, in this open air after being cooped up on the Enterprise. It's a, it's a great feeling.
3: I think you make a great point. And one of the things that I think people misconstrue about how stories work is there's a thing, you probably heard this, that Hollywood wants the same but different And so what frequently happens is they go, oh, we did a Star Trek episode and it was really dark and had lots of action and it was good. Well, that's what the audience wants. So let's just do that over and over and over again. And what Star Trek understands is we like these characters and we really enjoy them. And yeah, we could see a really dark action oriented episode and we can see a really fun episode and the characters can remain true to themselves and we can have a really different experience with them. And that's just one of the things that makes this such a fun show. You
0: know, you have to see this place to believe it. It's like something out of Battles in Wonderland. (laughs) Ding.
3: <laughs> First of all, I don't think this looks like Alice in Wonderland at all. <laughs> this looks like maybe where Alice was before she went to Wonderland, but Wonderland is a much weirder place than this. And then the other moment that I think is so important is we're talking about whether or not the captain has come down, going to come down. And McCoy says,
0: You've got your problems, I've got mine. But he's got ours, plus his, plus 430 other people.
3: Yeah, wow. That
2: really hits it on the head, doesn't it? And the mm-hmm. other thing, too, is how again, sort of continuing along with some chronology here with some canon is where does Sulu go? He goes off to collect a couple of blades and to check the floor because as we saw in uh, The Man Trap, in addition to being a helmsman, he is also a botanist. So it's great to see that man. You know, we talked elsewhere about how there was so much more for George Takei and he really had a lot to do. His character really did shine in the first season. And I think that even with the lower budget, first of all, it feels like a true ensemble. But also the other thing about True Leave is this, is that this is one of the few times throughout the original series where we see the Enterprise truly exploring a strange Mm. new world. You know, they're not responding to a distress call. They're not going to a star base. They're not transferring supplies from one ship to another to stop a plague. They're not picking up uh, scientists from a frozen station. Like like this is a completely unexplored planet. They are here for surely, but they are also here to do their jobs. And we find out just how how much they are ill-equipped
3: to do just that. Yeah, because in the next moment, after Sulu goes off to hunt down some blades of grass, out comes the giant rabbit. Oh,
2: my paws and whiskers.
3: I'll be late. And then out comes Alice, who asks,
2: Excuse me, sir. Have you seen a rather large white rabbit with a yellow waistcoat and white gloves hereabout?
3: And Bones' awkward point (laughs) to where the rabbit went. And she runs off and he yells, Sulu! Sulu! You know, a
2: lot of things about this moment. I agree with you. DeForest Kelly's reaction is just perfect, spot on. Uh, But also, like, they're walking around and they're embracing the openness of this beautiful, beautiful, unexplored world. And the score that accompanies that moment is really like, you know, full of so much optimism and, and openness as well. And then just like that, the tone of the episode shifts, the tone of Gerald Freed's score shifts to something playful. Now the actor, the actor in the rabbit costume, okay, is an actor who has appeared in 64 episodes of the original series. Wow. Now, okay. this actor, his name is Billy Blackburn, and you know him, and everyone else who's listening knows him, that for the duration of the first season and, and the other times in seasons two and three when when maybe Chekhov wasn't in the episode, he was the navigator who just never said a word. And in the episode, uh, A Piece of the Action, Scotty actually gave him a name, Lieutenant Hadley, but he was a stand-in for for the other actors and he also did some of the test makeup he actually was involved in a lot of aspects of the show but it is actually billy blackburn who was in the rabbit costume and in case you were wondering steve alice was played by young actress marcia brown
3: okay and i i hope that billy blackburn also made a good living going to conventions and signing autographs because what a what a impressive thing to have on your resume did you say 63 episodes 64 he was 64 64.
2: so i'm glad actually that is a great question steve because not only did he go to conventions but billy blackburn actually had the foresight to shoot home movies on the set of the original series Wow. There are some great home movies that he took during the filming of Arena. It's probably on YouTube somewhere. So, uh, so I think if you Google
3: Billy, well, let's Blackburn's- try to put it. Let's try to put it on our Facebook page. Yeah, that's so a that great people idea. People can find him. Yeah, Billy, B- Billy Blackburn's home movies of Star Trek. Yeah. That is so and cool. It's,
2: it's it's a lot. It's like. BTS of the original series. It's awesome.
3: So I had never heard that Gene Roddenberry was rewriting this episode until you said it. I didn't know he didn't like the rabbit, but he is 100% right. And let me tell you why I think he's right. Why? I like the rabbit. (laughs) So, and this is like, if, you know, if this script had come into me in my screenwriting class, this is what I would say is that in general, when there's a weird mysterious thing happening, you start with the most subtle one is that you start with one that has deniability where McCoy can go, Oh, maybe I saw that. Maybe I didn't. Maybe that's real. Maybe it isn't something that's subtle so that then there can be doubt around it. When mm. you start with the big guy in the rabbit suit and we know that it's real, you clue in the audience 100 percent immediately that there is something mystical and crazy and bizarre going on. And so if you'd start is that you you in general, you think about every horror movie, every mystical movie. They always, always good ones start small. And right. this one starts really, really big.
2: OK, I completely agree with you to that extent that that having uh, having a moment where McCoy really does truly doubt whether or not what he saw was real or maybe it was a figment of his imagination. This clearly was not a figment of his imagination. No. I mean, you know, there's there's no there's no, it's not a figment of our imagination either. Maybe they think you're I think you're right. I think they did go too big. But you know what, Steve, for the sake of of a classic Star Trek teaser. Oh, Where yeah. We're going to end that teaser on a whoa moment for this episode. That is a great whoa moment. And it's a different whoa Ooh. moment than we've seen in any episode before. And it was different from any other teaser that happened after this. Again, so much about Shore Leave is unique to Shore Leave. And because it is more science fiction or more, more, more science fantasy
3: than fiction. Well, and I'll say, Although I, I uh, disagree with it as a choice at the beginning, they get great mileage out of it for jokes going throughout the episode. They do great stuff with it. Um, and that was our teaser. And we come back in Act One. And I think a key detail, and I don't know if it happens any other time in Star Trek, is Kirk stumbles on the star date in the yeah. Captain's Log.
1: <laughs> Captain's Log, star date 3025.3. Uh,
3: I think that's a great, great choice. And then we see him. He's with Yeoman Barrows, who I think is great in this episode. She's great. I mean, can we just talk about Yeoman Barrows? Okay, first of all, obviously,
2: it does not take a rocket scientist to know that in the earlier versions of this story outline –
3: who do you think it was? Well, I hadn't thought about it until you said it, but of course it must
2: have been Yeoman Rand. It was absolutely Yeoman Rand. And in the earlier versions, because it was Yeoman Rand, some of the plot points between Kirk and Rand, of course, crossed the line and they got a little too chummy and a little too personal. But by this point, uh, it was it was Rand was out of the show and Emily Banks played Yeoman Barrows. And at the time, in the 60s, just like everybody else on Star Trek, practically, she made appearances on the Wild Wild West and Death Valley Days. Now, here's the thing about Yeoman Barrows. I think Emily Banks did a superb job playing her, like to the point where I really wish we could have seen more of Yeoman Barrows in the future. Now, when Janice Fran was in the earlier drafts, it was actually Robert Justman who suggested that she be replaced with another yeoman, Yeoman Barrows. Now, Robert Justman was a big fan of Emily Banks and thought she did a terrific job playing yeah. Yeoman Barrows. And he even suggested that she was so so good and so strong, like, like, hey, let's have her come back. Let's have her be a recurring character. But it was actually Gene Kuhn, who nicks that idea. And the reason for that is because where we see the relationship between McCoy and Barrows go, because it does get too personal and because there, there's a lot more going on the flirtation here. Like they are obviously very, very into each other. They would have had to address that if she came back to another episode. So Jean Coon just took the easy way out and said, now she's out. Let's let's uh, let's get someone else.
3: (laughs) Um, And even she, it seems like it's really going around the enterprise that the captain needs a break. Sir, I don't see your name in any of the shore parties. Well, I may be tired, young man, but I'm not falling fine. Dismissed. And she kind of reluctantly says, aye, sir. And now in comes Spock. And we're talking about shore leave. And Spock says, like, we don't do vacations, is what he's basically saying. When we rest. We just shut down and rest. We don't use a lot of energy in order to rest. That doesn't seem logical. Uh, by the way, we've seen that happen. That's in right. the
2: episode, remember in uh, by any other name when they're yeah. being held captive by the Kelvins and they're being held in that cell you know Kirk even says to Spock don't the Vulcans have like a trance and Spock says we prefer
3: to your so-called vacation I, I think it's such an interesting thing that that we're talking about rest and uh, relaxation and how important it is and it's like it literally goes back to the very beginnings of the of the Hebrew Torah is that a day of rest that hmm. this idea that we actually need to recharge is really, really important, and it's one that I am not all that good at i so those I tend to work you know all the time so yeah yeah i know just, me
2: too and i and i just when i'm on vacation i feel guilty about being on vacation
3: well actually i bring work on vacation so, that just, so, so gonna, like, like i'm going away as, as i told you i'm going away in a couple of days for my mom's 80th birthday i'm probably going to bring some cinephiles and enterprise incidents and i'll probably do a little bit of editing because i got stuff to get done you yeah know? no thank um, you for doing that um And McCoy calls up, asks if Kirk is beaming down. And then, and I, he's really honest about what is going on. He doesn't try to cover this up at all. He says,
0: Either our scouting probes and detectors are malfunctioning and all us scouts careless and beauty intoxicated, or I must report myself unfit for duty.
3: And Spock and Kirk think that he's joking. And they really think he's joking when he says,
0: On this supposedly uninhabited planet, I just saw a large rabbit pull a gold watch from his vest and claim that he was late.
2: I love that Kirk kind of runs with the joke because he thinks that McCoy is joking. And here's the thing that struck me about watching the episode this time, Steve. You know, like, shouldn't they all kind of be taking this a little more seriously? This is Mm -hmm. an unexplored world, and clearly this is not something that McCoy hallucinated and he's calling up, you know, very nonchalantly telling the captain and Mr. Spock what he saw. I mean, you know, we we do see Kirk in a bit stop surely from happening when he sees it for his own eyes. But he should have taken action a lot sooner. And a lot of this couldn't have been avoided
3: if he did. Well, I think because uh, I think at this moment they don't believe that this is true. Like they right. think that he's just joking. The only way I think this makes sense, and it's not in the episode, it's just what I'm putting in. (laughs) I think they're being drugged on some level. I don't think they're mentally in because I don't think their behavior makes 100 percent sense. I think they are just a little bit high. That's what I think. But who's drugging them? Well, the planet, I think you beamed down to this planet and it makes you just a little bit more accepting of what is going on.
2: OK, now, you know what? I'm not going to disagree with that assessment. And here's why. First of all, we in just a few episodes are about to see a drug alter mm-hmm. the perceptions of colonists and members of the enterprise mm-hmm. in this side of paradise. So maybe there is something to that. Because in addition to giving a lot more support to the theories of why people are just taking things not as seriously as they should, this episode was filmed towards the end of 1966 when flower power, the hippie movement, was really going in full swing. And there's no doubt that a lot of what was in the air, so to speak, was being influenced by the hippie movement and the counterculture, and that could have been an
3: influence on this episode i think it's very possible because the thing we'll get into it is that there are ways that people respond that are very interesting let's say that's
1: a mccoy pill a little mystery sugar coating he wants to get me down there afraid i won't swallow it
3: and kirk's like i'm not going down and he says this (laughs) while rubbing his own neck um one thing i want to point out we, we've said how great Jerry Finnerman is. There's like mm. some weird cinematography errors, I would say, in this, it, particularly on the, in this scene. One of the things you do when you're shooting is I might have three lights, five lights, ten lights lighting up a scene. And what if I put three lights on you right now, Scott, what I would see behind you is three different shadows. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you and that is, that is bad in cinematography. And so what you do is you flag the lights, which means putting like a black thing in front of them in such a way that – All of the shadows disappear, that you only see a shadow that you want to see. And there's a moment where you see three shadows on the wall in in Kirk's quarters when Spock is talking to him. That just seems like And what I wonder is often when you're shooting on location and on the set, well, they might be having two crews shooting at the same time. And Finnerman's only in one place and Mm. he's probably out on location. And so he's got an assistant who's shooting this scene because it's not as important. And that and therefore that's why that's why this lighting mistake happens. That that's what I think I have no evidence of it at all. Hmm. Um and then Spock and I love this. Spock says we have a crew member aboard who's showing signs of
0: stress and fatigue. Reaction time down nine to twelve percent. Associational rating norm minus three. That's much too low a rating. He's becoming irritable and quarrelsome, yet he refuses to take rest and rehabilitation. Now he has that right. And Kirk cuts him off
3: and
1: says we found Crewman's ride ends where the safety of the ship begins. Now that man will go ashore on my orders. What's his name?
2: Jim <laughs> <Chip> Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> the look that Spock gives Kirk and the, the look on Shatner's face, just that like, oh. And then as Spock is saying, enjoy
0: yourself, Captain.
2: There's like a sly smile, like, okay,
3: you win. What I wonder is, did McCoy and Spock set this up together? Oh, well...
2: I'm going to say yes to I, think I think that so they were in cahoots for sure.
3: I, I think like we saw in Conscience of the King, they are perfectly capable of working together to, do, to handle James Kirk if they have to. And they are
2: very capable. Uh, not only are they capable of working together, but they are motivated to work together when it comes to the best interests of their
3: captain and their friend. And now we have two crew, mem- crew members down on the planet who we've never met before. We have Rodriguez and crewman Martine. And she is interested in the beauty of the surroundings. And Rodriguez, much like me, is still trying to do his job. <laughs> well, wait a minute, Steve. You say there are two crewmen here that we've never met before. Oh. There's actually only
2: one crewman that we never met before. So Rodriguez who we did not meet before, uh, was played by actor Perry Lopez. But Angela Martin is played by Barbara Baldwin,
3: who played the widow in Balance of Terror. That's, you know what? As soon as you said that, I'm like, oh no, that's the same woman, isn't it? It's the same, in
2: fact, in fact. So don't, by the way, don't feel bad because while they were filming this episode, Barbara Baldwin's character had a different name. And somebody spoke up, uh, this person who the somebody is, is not named, but someone said, wait a minute, uh, wasn't she in Balance of Terror? And they went, oh, yeah, that's right. So they gave her the same name, Angela Martine. And that is why uh, I guess she got over Robert Tomlinson's death pretty yeah. quick.
3: <laughs> I think that's why I didn't pick up on it because it just is so, so – like she's so important in Balance of Terror and she's di- very different in this episode um and kirk and barrows beam down and they head over to find where uh mccoy is and we're it's this is where i totally understand why this went over schedule and over budget because there are a lot of shots that are very complicated and Mm -hmm. this one right now is we're on a dolly and we're tracking with a camera at a low angle looking up at barrows and kirk as they're walking and it's a fairly long dolly shot and that just takes a long time to set up and we find mccoy and as we walk over towards him, we hear a sound that we're going to hear many times, which is kind of like a wind chime.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and
3: it mm-hmm. gives you a sense that there is something
2: going on. We, we talked about how when the crew beams down to a planet, sometimes we hear like a, a planet vibration, a planet sound. So they wanted the sound of this mysterious planet to sound different than all the other planets like Talos 4, Uh, But... They wanted it to sound like there was something like magical in the air. So that's why they gave it like a wind
3: chimey kind of sound. And Kirk right away makes a joke about, have you seen any rabbits? And then very quickly we find out this really isn't a joke because there on the ground is a giant Mm -hmm. rabbit's footprint. And now Kirk is realizing something's going on. And he Mm -hmm. halts the shore leave. There was a party about to beam down and he stops them. And McCoy's going, why don't stop this because of this.
1: You're the doctor. Doctor, can you explain this? Oh no. Neither can I. I admit it looks harmless. Probably is harmless. But before I bring my people down here, I want proof it's harmless.
2: That's the Kirk we know for sure. Exactly. Right. He snapped back into it. Like while I was on the Enterprise talking to McCoy, he was like kind of playing around with him. But now he's like,
3: Well, nope, he was he was right. He saw something. And right at that moment we hear a gunshot. And Kirk draws his phaser, and now we have another huge long tracking shot that's very i don't think we've ever seen anything like this in star trek which is it is a really really fast dolly move of going backwards as kirk runs towards uh whatever this sound is and it's a really exciting camera move but again it takes a long time to set up and it's so fast that i go wait was this on a dolly or was this on a truck
2: yeah, I mean, it's yeah. really
3: hauling on this. And shot. it's
2: it's also smooth, like it's not rocky at all. Yeah. So you're right. Bob Justman loved the creative choices that Robert Sparr made on this episode because right. you know that's just a that's a scene that we never really saw and never will see again. That this episode just feels so unique. But that's one of the reasons. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why Robert Sparr went a day over schedule. One of them was that certainly the the, the complicated shots, the other. Certainly because Roddenberry was on site and they had to wait for him to type out pages for the revised
3: scenes. Um, Well, and you're now shooting instead of being on a lot, you're shooting on location and just transport time is uh, I know where Vasquez Rocks is. It is it is a good hour plus drive from L.A. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've been there, I assume. Oh, of course. You kidding? I (laughs) I figured you made a pilgrimage to Vasquez Rocks. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And I don't know exactly where Africa, USA was. Do you? It was about 40 miles north of Los Angeles. So that means just in terms of travel time, you've got an hour plus both ways. If they had Mm -hmm. to do company moves during the middle of the day, that kills half a day. I mean, it just really adds a lot of of time to your schedule. So they heard this gunshot, they run, and there is Sulu calmly doing target practice. And he is super excited. And he says,
1: isn't it a beauty? I haven't got anything like this in my collection." I know it's a crazy coincidence, but I've always wondered one like this. Found it lying right over there,
3: and there's a huge smile on his face. And I just go, "It's just what you said before." They really developed this character of Sulu. He mm-hmm. loves botany, fencing. He collects antique guns. Like he's just a really this is a fascinating guy. I wish we had more
2: of. Absolutely, and by the way, just make note, Steve, that he fired four shots from that mm. gun. Okay, ah. four shots. So keep that in mind because I'm going to bring it up again later.
3: <laughs> I will. I will definitely remember it. Kirk has him hand the gun over. Um, and but but I love he's just like you know Sulu is like so like full of so much glee, he's like
2: bragging about the gun. He's like a kid in a candy store, and like like a a scolding parent, Kirk is like Mister Sulu, and he hand he extends his hand. It's so funny, the uh,
3: interplay between Kirk and Sulu. Well, this is where I think they're just a little bit high because mm-hmm. Sulu should have, as soon as he found the gun, called it in
2: because mm-hmm.
3: mm-hmm. this yeah. is a really, really weird thing. And he certainly shouldn't have started immediately just firing it. That That is just slightly strange behavior. There's so much to this episode
2: where if you really, really think about it and hold it up under scrutiny, like uh, starting with what we talked about, how, how Kirk was on the Enterprise and McCoy was on the planet saying, I just saw this thing and you know, they didn't take him seriously enough. So if you go along with the Steve Morris theory that everybody on this mysterious planet is high then I am definitely willing to let things slide like Sulu finding a gun, like uh, there being a samurai out there and, you know, Finnegan popping up because it makes the most sense that there's something about the planet that is intoxicating our crew into making bad judgment
3: calls or not acting fast enough. Well, and what is Kirk's line when he takes the gun? He says,
1: I'll hang on to it with the fresh air. Seems to have made you trigger happy.
3: Oh, There's your proof. (laughs) Well, what's funny, uh, well, let's keep going and we'll discuss this as we go. Um, (laughs) We see McCoy and Kirk kind of walking back to the glade. And as they walk, this strange antenna pops up and is tracking with them, observing them. So we, the audience, are now ahead. I mean, pretty much we knew since we saw the rabbit, we heard McCoy say, this reminds me of Alice in Wonderland. And then he saw the rabbit. I think we as the audience have a pretty good idea of what is going on, you mm-hmm. know? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> I love this moment. Oh, well, it could have been worse. Oh,
0: you could have seen the rabbit.
2: <laughs> but see, that's what I mean. I love that the levity. Me too. I love that, the, you know, the sort of letting their hair down and, you know, the being more comfortable with each other, you know, letting go of the chain of command and being friends. And they're on a planet. I mean, even though there's something, something definitely weird is going on, uh, maybe the fresh air is making everybody trigger happy. But I've loved that kind of levity and that moment between Kirk and McCoy. Uh, it's, it's a nice moment. <laughs> What's the
1: matter, Bones? You getting a persecution complex. Well, yeah, I'm beginning to feel a little bit picked on, if that's what you mean.
3: And then this response is part of my epiphany about Captain Kirk. Okay. He says,
1: I know the feeling very well. I had it at the academy. Not for there. One practical joke after another and always on me, my own personal devil, a guy by the name of Finnegan. And you being the very serious young... Serious? I'll make a confession, Bones. I was absolutely grim, which delighted (laughs) Finnegan no end.
3: Okay. All right. Let's hear your epiphany because I had one too. All right. So let me ask you this question. Mm -hmm. What would you say, with your vast knowledge of Star Trek history and of James T. Kirk, is the most important, most pivotal moment for Kirk... At Starfleet Academy, what is the biggest thing that ever happened? The
2: biggest thing that ever happened to Kirk at Starfleet Academy, uh, for one thing, I would say, well, for starters, uh, reprogramming the Kobayashi Maru so he could save the Enterprise.
3: I think that is the number one thing in Kirk, in Kirk lore. Obviously, it's one of the most important things of Raph of the Con. It's something that we discuss and establishes who it's char- his character is. And that character of the guy who reprogrammed the Kobayashi Maru because he didn't believe in the no-win scenario, that's like, yeah, that's Kirk. That's not Kirk. Did. And
2: by the way, do I get props for getting that right? 100%, yes, absolutely.
3: <laughs> you do, you do, but I have to say, I had no doubts that you were gonna get it. I, was, <laughs> okay, okay. I, was, I, had, I had the utmost faith in you. And I think if you watch 2009 Star Trek, what it says, and now that Kirk is slightly different because his background is very different. That says he was that way from the beginning. We see him as a kid stealing a car and driving it off a cliff. And then we meet young Chris Pine and he is aggressive and arrogant and cheats and doesn't follow the rules and all that. We're like, yeah, that's Kirk because that's who we see Kirk as. I don't think that's who this Kirk was. This Kirk was absolutely grim. And let's talk about the things that we've heard about his character, where no man has gone before.
2: Hey, man, I remember you back at
3: the academy. A stack of books with legs.
0: The first thing I ever heard from an upperclassman was, watch out for Lieutenant Kirk. In his class, you either think or sink. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
3: Is, okay. And now we're hearing, so, so what's the, the chronology here is as a plebe, he was so serious, he was absolutely grim. And he was picked on. By this guy Finnegan. And what we're going to see. Is he holds a fantasy. That he's held for a long time. About finally kicking the tar out of Finnegan. Which means Uh, he didn't stand up to him then. Well so what are you saying? I'm saying Kirk was on some level a
2: nerd. Okay. all right. now I'm going to. Just so you know. Yeah. I am am with you on this. And I'm going to take it one step further. You pointed out that Kirk was a stack of books with legs. In his class, you either think or sink. Who said those words? Gary Mitchell. So does that mean that Gary Mitchell also picked on James T. Kirk back in the academy?
3: Well, what we talked about with Gary Mitchell was he was Kirk's sort of aggressive friend who took him to the bars. And I think he did pick on him. And we also have in the chronology that there is Kirk the plebe, who gets picked on by Finnegan. And then there's Kirk, the student, who has Finney as his teacher, who later surpasses Finney. And in court-martial, we talked about all those lieutenants in the bar that Kirk had blown past and their jealousy of him. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. another thing that happens at court-martial that I have never thought about, I always just let it fly past me. In the trial, they ask, who is capable of reprogramming the ship's computer? And those people are Lieutenant Commander Finney, Mr. Spock and James T. Kirk. They put Kirk's computer abilities right up there with Spock. Now, Kirk never shows that. But in fact, he was a stack of books with legs. You either, th- you either think or sink. I think the Kirk who is in the academy, was the hardest working, hardest studying, smartest. I mean, the guy's a genius, but we always see his genius as something he comes about naturally. He does everything with ease. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think that's because he actually worked his ass off and was super, super serious and grim and studied computer programming. And knew, I think he read every single book about chess before he could beat Spock at chess. I think there's a guy who studied and worked Really, really, really hard. Who only I think the Kobayashi Maru isn't the symbol of who Kirk was in his whole life. I think the Kobayashi Maru is the moment that he became Kirk. That's
2: a great point. That's a great point because because from that point forward, he never believed in the no win scenario. Kirk yep. always won, and or most of the time he didn't win in Charlie X. Sure, uh, but but still, I I, I completely agree with your establishment of when Kirk became Kirk of when he, that his character really kicked in. He was a stack of books with legs. He, he was a, he knew everything about computers. He was a nerd. So only a nerd could reprogram the Kobayashi Maru and, and his acceleration to the captain's chair was definitely the source of jealousy and envy on the part of everyone else in Starfleet. But I'm just going on a little tangent with regards to Finnegan's place in Kirk's life in the Academy and Gary Mitchell's place. Like where do Kirk and Gary Mitchell and Finnegan fall in? Like if Kirk and Gary Mitchell were like going out to the bars and, and Gary Mitchell was the one who wanted to stay out later because Kirk had to get back and wake up early and study for a test. Then where is Finnegan was, was, was Gary Mitchell friendly with Finnegan or did Gary Mitchell stick up for his good friend Captain Kirk when Finnegan went too far
3: Well the timeline is a little bit wonky because we know that he was a plebe with Finnegan well that means it's his first year and Gary Mitchell describes him as Lieutenant Kirk who's an instructor so those are there's some there's some time between those things mm-hmm. but what I see now is that there is an evolution here, and 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 maybe this is kind of how I feel felt is that being shy and studious to some degree, I always like if I if I could be in charge, I know I could do a good job. Is that I think Kirk had that belief in himself, <laughs> but he didn't have the courage as a plebe to stand up to Finnegan. It took it took some time. It took some experiences with Gary Mitchell. You know what I mean? Finnegan's a bully. I mean to be really really clear, and we're going to get to it. Kirk is a person who was bullied as a kid. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. I never had that, even though I'd watched short leave dozens of times, I never connected the fact that this is a guy who really, really picked on Kirk in a horrible way. And he never fought back until he does. (laughs) He does now for sure. Yeah. And so, and what's interesting too is what were all us nerds? Were we the popular kids? No, we were the smart studious kids who were frequently picked on. That's right. Is that, even though Kirk is the person we wanted to be, part of why that is, is because he was us, Scott. Yep. Kirk was that a nerd who yep. evolved and, and, and took up, like what I think he did is I think at a certain point he went, I'm trying to think about how to say this without a bad word. What I want to say is he went, F-, but I'm not going to say that. So <laughs> I think at a certain point, Kirk just went, I'm done. I'm finished. I'm going to be the person who I know I can be. And I'm going to do the Kobayashi Maru. That's what I think.
2: Uh, I I completely agree with that, and uh, it's another look. Look, you know, establishing Kirk as a nerd who turned into the person he exactly he, he is. You know, the the person that we have just because we've been watching Star Trek all our lives, you know, he's been such a role model, such a hero, someone that we aspire to, someone who always did the right thing, whether it's coming up with the the Kobayashi Maru and then, you know, coming up with the Corbomite Maneuver. The same person who was smart enough to outsmart the computer was also the same person who was also smart enough to outsmart Balak. And, you know, the same person who would tell Uh, Zefram Cochran, you know, we're on a thousand planets and spreading out, you know, give one of his inspirational speeches or say that risk is our business, that Kirk was all of those things and is all of those things. But he he was all of those things because he started out being so smart, so hardworking, being such a nerd, being smart enough to reprogram a computer and to uh, ultimately get in the captain's chair faster than anybody else.
3: And I'll tell you what I like about this theory is that the sense of Kirk is always that he does things with ease.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: And what I like about this theory is that he earned it. Is he worked really, really, ho- it seems like, and this is true, I'm sure you know this in your profession and the people that I certainly know, is that there are all these people who, man, they come out and they're a great actor or they're a great writer and and it looks easy. And what you don't see is the thousands of hours they spent trying to get there. You know, and it, it, it's funny, I'll say one more thing. And I know we've gone on this tangent for a long time. Is uh, As you know, I've done martial arts for a long time. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this, but there is a strange subset of nerds that are martial arts nerds. Because being doing martial arts is exactly the same thing of studying physics or of, you know, all the things or computer programming. It's a thing that is boring and (laughs) you have to get on the mat and do it over and over and over and over again. And you obsessively try to do this thing to get good at it. And then when you see a good martial artist and they do things with ease, you're like, wow, you make it all look so easy. And it's because you don't see the 10,000 hours of struggle and pain and failure. And I think what I've realized about Kirk is that he is the iceberg is we see on the surface, the guy who acts with ease and what we don't see is this is a guy who worked his ass off to get there. Jim. And there he is. There is our bully Finnegan.
2: Finnegan, Played by Bruce Mars, who around the time of Star Trek also appeared on Bonanza, the time tunnel, the Lucy show voyage to the bottom of the sea and He played a part in not just one other Star Trek episode, but two other Star Trek episodes. So he was one of the policemen in the 20th century in Assignment Earth. Mm. And he also had an uncredited role in the Corbomite Maneuver, and he was given that role because he originally auditioned for the role of Mr. Bailey, but Mm. did not get that role. Now, as originally written, Finnegan was a meaner, nastier character, but Bruce Mars had suggested to director Robert Spahr, to writer Theodore Sturgeon, and ultimately to Gene Roddenberry to make him funnier and more playful. So hats off to Bruce Mars for having the foresight to add some levity to the character of Finnegan because
3: he is a fun character. Um, and we are about to enter into a multi-act fight scene. <laughs> this has got to be the longest fight scene that's ever been on Star Trek. It, it, has, it, to it be. has to be. It <laughs> just goes, and he, and as you see, you're right. Finnegan is laughing and giggling and just so full of this crazy energy.
0: You never know when I'm going to strike.
3: <laughs> and I love that you know right away he punches Jim right in the face. I'm Jim. Kirk rolls away, comes up on one knee, rubs his mouth. And of course, he's at first goes, I can't believe it's not possible for you to be here. But this is where I go. I think they're all a little high because he stopped saying that. And when he gets up, Finnegan says,
0: Go ahead, lay one on me because that's what you always
2: wanted. Isn't
3: it? And you see that smile form on yeah. William Shatner's face. Yeah, he's holding his jaw and he's like smiling at the same time. Like, oh, it's payback time. And this is the thing. And I think this is the next clue for the audience about what is going on. This is fun. Even though mm-hmm. he just got pinched, punched in the face. He is excited about the idea of finally going toe-to-toe with Finnegan. And just as that's about to happen, we hear a scream. And Kirk runs off. And again, it's a really fast Dolly shot. Again, another shift in tone and also another shift in the
2: tone of the score by Gerald Freed, that that Irish-themed cue that he puts into his score here. I mean, this is all in one episode, all these different tones that we hear. Like when you hear the score for like The Conscience of the King, Joseph Mullendor's score, it's very Baroque. Uh, it, it, it sounds it sounds classical, but right. the score for for shortly by free just, it, it goes, it's all over the place in all the right ways because all the different shifts in tones in the score are just brilliantly matching the shift
3: in tones of the episode itself. It's absolutely, it's absolutely true. This this is really one of my favorite scores. I didn't know that it was, but it's so interesting, some of the stuff that they do. And Kirk runs, and there is Yeoman Barrows, and her uniform has been slightly torn, and Mm -hmm. there was something that happened, and there was a guy with a cloak and a dagger. And Kirk asks, are you sure you're not imagining this? And she says,
1: Captain, I know it sounds incredible, but I did not imagine it any more than I
2: imagined he did this.
3: Pointing to her torn uniform. And I kind of go, why would Kirk at this point think that she imagined it? He literally just got punched in the face from a dude for, he hasn't seen for 15 years.
2: Well, if we stay with your theory that they're all, you know, they're all a little loopy right now because they're all breathing in the fresh air. But here's the thing about, about Yeoman Barrows. So we realized that she had been thinking about Don Juan because yes. McCoy points out that uh, it sounds like Don Juan. And she goes, yes, yes, she was thinking about Don Juan. Now, wait a second. So she's thinking about Don Juan as like this romantic character. But what we're establishing here with the fact that her uniform was torn, is this attempted rape? And did Yeoman Barrows, what exactly did she fantasize for Don Juan to rip her uniform?
3: Well, I think, so because this has now come up multiple times, I think we should to some degree talk about there is an idea of that used to be far more common about rape fantasy and things like that that are you know fairly distasteful to discuss. But we cause we saw it in the end of the enemy within when Spock says to Yeoman Rand there was some interesting things about that other version of, of Kirk, wasn't it? And you and I both went, yeah, awful. Yeah, totally, yeah. We also have the Dr. Noel who programs Kirk with this fantasy and it essentially is, I kind of am happier if you don't care about me. That's mm-hmm, part of mm-hmm. what the fantasy is. Right. And I said, man, Dr. Noel has some pretty weird fantasies about Kirk. But then what I should have said is, the people, the men who wrote that episode – actually have some pretty weird fantasies about Dr. Noel. Yeah. Is there some toying with the idea of the woman being taken, which is throughout romance novels and all this stuff is something that has been played with that I think the, you know, grows more and more problematic as we start to become hopefully like, the crew of the enterprise, more evolved people.
2: Yes, <laughs> because, for sure. Yeah, you know. for sure. But it, but it was interesting. Like I, I didn't think about, about the, uh, sort of the symbolism of the t- the touring uniform until I was I was w- re-watching this episode now with a, a different set of eyes. But yeah, but yeah there was a, a, a masculinity uh, that was sort of turned up a notch.
3: And then we ask where Sulu is. It ends up Sulu ran after the Don Juan character. And so Kirk now runs off. Again, we see Van antenna track with him. And he runs, and I love this transition, he loves runs directly from the beautiful gardens of Africa, USA <laughs> to Vasquez. <laughs> to (laughs) rocks, rocks. (laughs) some prop plants around to, to, to clue us in. And this is where this to me is one of the biggest moments of evidence of they're a little bit high because he runs into this new space. He's looking for Sulu. His yeoman has just been attacked. There's some serious stuff going on. And then Kirk sees a flower and he plucks the flower and smells it.
2: And at that moment, the tone of the score changes again to this beautiful theme, which is Root's theme. And it's a score that we've heard time and time again throughout the rest of the series, particularly the uh, uh, love scenes between Spock and Layla Colomy in this side of paradise. Right. But Joe Fried's score, once again, right on point and Kirk can't believe his eyes. When we see a beautiful blonde come out from nowhere, practically. And this is Ruth played by actress Shirley Bond and She's blonde. Now, elsewhere, Steve, you know, we hear Gary Mitchell talk about uh, the little blonde haired lab technician. Now, I think we're going with that. That's actually Carol Marcus, but there it are could a few be blondes. It it's could e-
3: be Ruth. He could easily be Ruth.
2: Now, what we don't know about Ruth is like, I mean, she's not wearing a Starfleet uniform. So she's wearing a very uh, civilian uniform. So maybe that's not the blonde blonde haired lab technician,
3: but maybe it is. Again, this goes to what is the, what are the other things we know about Kirk and his internal struggles? And one of the biggest ones is no beach to walk on Mm -hmm. is that Mm -hmm. Kirk made the decision. I think Kirk, as we said, I think he's a self-created person. He decided I want to be the captain of a starship. That is what I want. And therefore he made a bunch of choices to get him there. And one of the choices was there was, there were these women Carol Marcus, Ruth, who he chose not to pursue. And so that heartache is coming out right now. Like here is his chance to have Ruth back. And she kisses him. And in this moment of him going, how, how is it possible that you're here? We have reached the end of act one. Mm. And, I, and again, I think these are classic nerd fantasies. I'm going to stand up to the bully who picks on me and I'm going to get the girl that I didn't get before. Wow. Yeah, we Absolutely. We're back in act two and we're back with Kirk and Ruth. He calls McCoy. There's no answer. And instead of following up on that, cause we're in a dangerous situation on a strange planet. He turns back to Ruth.
1: Ruth, how can it be you? <laughs> how can you
3: possibly be?
1: You haven't aged.
3: Again, this is why I think they're a little bit high, because what we've seen from Kirk is he has more than any human around the ability to do what is necessary, despite having been uh, the disease in the naked time, despite being split in two, despite being tortured on the. T- I mean, he was on the tannalist device and he still managed to do what he had to do. But in this moment, he turns back to Ruth you know
2: and, and and he like actually has a serious conversation with. now yeah. here here's the other thing about about this uh, predicament that the the crew they find themselves in so McCoy is seeing the rabbit and and you know Sulu picks up the gun fires the gun in four times again four times and now <laughs> Kirk has been punched in the face by his arch enemy from the academy and now he is uh, embracing romantically with someone who just might be one of the loves of his life what we're not really taking into account here is that in the prior adventure they were just dealing with a situation where the previous captain of the enterprise was forced to live out illusions that were so real he couldn't tell the difference between fantasy and reality mm. yep now now the enterprise crew itself finds itself on a planet where they are now living out fantasies that may or may not be real. And they should have absolutely have had a red flag early on that maybe this is all an illusion. They should have been more, certainly much more careful and much more alert. Here. Did you
0: find Mr. Sulu, Captain? What? Did you find Mr. Sulu?
1: No. But i'm sure he's all right sir
3: are you all right yes i'm fine and the thing too is all of these illusions are dangerous mm-hmm. you know illu- not seeing reality is dangerous that's something we've established over with the man trap all sorts of times in, in the course of this show and now we're not feeling that way and he gets a call from rodriguez who's saying he sees birds and kirk's response is don't you
1: like birds mr rodriguez <laughs>
2: For the sake of this episode, it's almost like you really got to treat it like a standalone episode and let a lot of things slide. Because if Kirk is with Ruth and he's like so drawn to her and so caught up in the moment, how would Kirk have reacted if he was the one taken prisoner by the Talosians and forced to live out fantasies with Vina? Would he have been as strong as Pike was, or would he have
3: caved into his feelings a little too soon? Well, these are the things, okay. And, and I had to say, of course, we're speculating. We're way beyond where the show is, obviously. But here, here's what I think about this. I think there's two differences. The first difference is like in The Naked Time, Kirk can snap out of the thing that no, no one else can snap out of. A, because I think, because he'd already been split in two in The Enemy Within, and B, because his ship that he loves is about to be destroyed and all of them are about to die. There's no such horribleness about to happen here right now. He's just got this old, this old flame that he wants to pursue. So the situation is very different. And the other thing I just have to go back to, I think these are better drugs. Like, I think <laughs> that it just, I think they're all feeling real good. And I'm not going to say that I have any experience with anything like this, because, of course, that would not be appropriate. But <laughs> if I did have some experience, I would say there's certain times where the best, the worst thing you can do is not accept what's going on. And the best thing you can do is just go with it, man. You and just they just got to go with it. Yep, for sure. But Kirk does really start to get you know, snap himself out of it again. You know, he says, like, basically, I got to go. You know, yeah. but Ruth says,
1: you'll see me again if you want to.
3: And now we see McCoy and Yeoman Barrows. I think DeForest Kelly is so great in all of this. And I think the connection with Yeoman Barrows is fantastic. I Yeah, love they have the great, great chemistry. Together. Yeah. Yep. They have really, really good together. Mm-hmm. McCoy is being so flirty. And so romantic. And again, this is where I go. I don't think they're feeling the way they, I don't think they would behave this way. I think people are too nervous usually to be as forward as, as they are being right now. You know, she talks about it's like a fairy tale and she should be dressed like a fairy tale princess. With And he, he says,
0: but then you'd have whole armies of Don Juan's to fight off. Yeah. And me too. What a promise doctor.
3: I mean that is very very forward very forward and you're right maybe they are uh, drinking a little bit too much kool-aid on this planet and they take hands and then in the next moment we see the dress the dress that she described and again they should go wait you just described that dress and now that dress is there clearly this is what's happened but they don't do that and what i love is the way she says the line she says
0: oh doctor they're lovely
3: she says it as if he gave them to her mm-hmm, do you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah 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 and he is just looking at her with just the look of total love and then he just kind of goes you, know, you can see him have the thought of hey maybe I should call this in or something he goes "Ah, eh, just go with it <laughs> you know
0: look at me doctor a lady to be protected and fought for
3: so we get what her fantasies are
0: a princess of the blood royal you are all of those things and many more
2: What else do you get to see McCoy really show his softer side like this? I mean, to an extent in the man trap, but it was all it was all after the fact from it was different. It was it was from a a love that had already happened. Of course, she wasn't even really alive. The only other time you really see this side of McCoy. Well, there's two times first of all, obviously, for the world is hollow and I've touched the sky with the tear of Yonada. But you also see him very. Complimentary to Miranda in Is There in Truth No Beauty when mm. they're having uh when they're having uh dinner, you know. Um, but DeForest Kelly, underutilized actor. I'll tell you what else was under underutilized in this episode. So we've now seen two fantasies for Kirk, you know, yeah. one a love interest, the other getting back at an old bully, and Sulu with the gun and McCoy with the rabbit. But Up to this point, you know, we're almost halfway through this episode and Spock is still in the enterprise. Yep. Now, talk about a missed opportunity. What would Spock's fantasy have been and how different would that have been? Obviously, very different is the answer from that of the other fantasies that we would have seen. And if anybody is going to really give Spock a backstory through a fantasy Theodore Sturgeon, the writer of this mm. episode, was yeah. the perfect person to do it because Theodore Sturgeon right. just opened up so much to Spock's world with a mock time meeting his family in the Ponthar and you're seeing Vulcan for the first time. So it's a shame that we never got the chance in this episode to really see a fantasy that is very, very, very different from the other fantasies that we have seen.
3: It's a great, that's a great point. Um, I love I love the moment where she he finally convinces her to try on the outfit and she goes, don't peek. And he says,
0: dear girl, I am a doctor. When I peek, it's in the line of duty.
3: <laughs> and then you know what? He does kind of peek a little he bit. He does peek. Yep. Just when he's talking to uh, Rodriguez, <laughs> the communications are starting to go down and he starts to lose it with Rodriguez, who who has my Spanish name, Esteban. Uh, And we lose Esteban, and then we cut to Rodriguez and Martine, and they are facing a tiger. And then out comes Yeoman Barrows with the romantic music in the outfit, and McCoy looks at her, and it is just, you know, know, I'll tell you, here's the difference between, it just occurred to me, the difference between The World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky and Man Trap, McCoy. That is old, tired McCoy falling in Mm -hmm. love. Right. This is young love
2: it's young love it's and mccoy is just like everyone else on this planet obviously everyone is being rejuvenated uh because of this of this fantasy and because they're on a just a just a beautiful planet you're right it's a different it's a different motivation for him to
3: feel those kinds of feelings for sure um kirk again is calling up to spock and we're talking about that these can't just be hallucinations he says
1: one hallucination flattened me with a cloud on the jaw The other."
3: And I love that he doesn't finish that sentence. Um, That is in in, in screenwriting. That's where you do an ellipse. You put three little dots and those three little dots is there's something the person was about to say that they chose not to say. And that's one of the great screenwriting tools there is, is those three little dots. (laughs) Um, And we're losing again. the, The communications are going down. And Spock says, should I beam down an armed party?
1: Negative. Our people here are armed with phasers. The science has yet to be any real danger.
3: And in that moment, he sees the birds. Um, <laughs> he sees the birds. <laughs> yeah. And Sulu is walking along the rocks and out pops the samurai.
2: <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I mean, come on. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's a moment that does not hold up uh, yep. very well at all. Like, why a samurai? Because he's Asian? I mean, come on. Well, Ray, the- it's
3: exactly the opposite of the choice they made to give him a, a, a rapier in uh, Naked Time is he could have had a samurai sword. And he said no. And that was a great choice. And that's why this is a weak choice.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Take
3: cover. There's a samurai after me. (laughs) That's silly. Um, (laughs) That's so silly. (laughs) And then they see somebody beaming down very, very slowly. And, of course, it's Mr. Spock.
2: So now the transporters are ineffective. Communications are down. So something from the planet is zapping the power from the Enterprise. That's a, a technique and a, a plot point that we would see happen in other episodes, like Return of the Archons, you know, where the, uh, you know, Landry was pulling the Enterprise down. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, there's Val from right. the Apple pulling the Enterprise down. Now, the, the, the Shirley Planet isn't doing that extreme, but it, the, this planet has now effectively stranded the landing party and cut them off from the Enterprise.
3: And we're back with McCoy and Barrows who are walking along. And she continues with, man, she's got some serious knight in shining armor fantasies. And <laughs> and of course, what do we see but a knight in shining armors? There's a big black knight. And McCoy has figured it out. I think he goes shadow of the gun style. If I don't believe in this, it can't hurt me. Okay. And, so- and
2: that that is exactly what Pike was doing in the yes. cage. And what they saw happen in the menagerie
3: the difference is is that that stuff was illusions and these right. things are actually real things that exactly, are manufactured yeah. <laughs> and he stands up there i think they shoot it really really well with the knight charging and the camera pushing in a mccoy and he's saying these things can't be real then then it hits him and he goes down and she screams uh spock tries to shoot with his phaser that doesn't work kirk shoots with the revolver how and many times two i think
2: three Three, ah. So there's the rub, Steve. So this was a six gun and it fired seven shots. Four from Sulu and three
3: from Kirk. Is it bad filmmaking because we didn't count the bullets? Or is it the planet that just added more bullets? Because that's what Kirk needed.
2: Well, I'm going to say that it was the planet
3: because Kirk wished that yep. that
2: extra bullet and that did the trick.
3: And then they see McCoy's body and the reaction of shock and the looks between Kirk and Spock to end act two, I think are great. Absolutely. And here's the other
2: thing about the way that act two ends. You got to remember that when Star Trek was being shown in first run, the forest Kelly was not yet a featured regular. Mm. So wow. at any point, I mean, even though he was in most of what we saw, I mean, obviously he wasn't in where no man has gone before, but he was not in what a little girl's made of, and he was not in part two of the menagerie. So, mm. You know what? It's mid season. Yeah. And what a shocker that they are. They really going to kill off Dr. McCoy.
3: I mean, he's not a regular. He's not. His name isn't on the opening credits. That's a really interesting thing about watching it first run, as opposed to watching how I watched it, because I because unlike you, I don't know the first episode that I saw. I don't <laughs> know what order I saw these things in. McCoy was just one of the main people, you know, like it so it would never have occurred to me that they were really going to kill McCoy. But if I was watching it in 1966, I probably would have. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And again, we start. This is where I totally see why this went over schedule. We start in a high angle push in, which is a more complicated shot to shoot. And things have gotten more serious. Yeoman Barrows starts to lose it. And I love that Kirk becomes the captain to get her back under control. (laughs) We're in trouble.
1: I need every crewman alert and thinking.
3: Hi, and Sulu is looking at the Black Knight, and it's like some weird mannequin. And as a person wearing
2: makeup, uh, the actor playing the dummy, the knight <laughs> is—it's uh, an actor named Paul Baxley. So there's hey. some deep trivia for you. But yeah. that the look, the way that the—it's—they it, could have just used a dummy. They could have just used a mannequin, but they used. A flesh and blood actor to make it look like a mannequin
3: to give it a very eerie, surreal feeling. Um, I think it's a really good choice because it does look very eerie. And what they say Mm -hmm. is basically everything, including this mannequin, is made out of the same cellular structure as the plants, that they're all somehow manufactured. All we know for certain is that they act exactly like the real thing,
0: just as pleasant or just as deadly.
3: We're back with uh, Rodriguez and Martin, and there is an airplane. And because he was just talking about an airplane, and she says, can it hurt us? And he says, well, not unless it makes a strafing run. And what's the next <laughs> thing he does? It makes a striking run. <laughs> and they try to run away, and she it looks like she gets killed.
2: Yeah, it looks like yeah, I mean you don't see
3: anything graphic, but but uh they
2: they run away and then she falls back and Rodriguez is, is cradling her. Yeah. So she's either seriously injured or or she she did in fact die. So
3: And we never but, deal with her again. <laughs> that's just that's just I mean, I'm assuming she got repaired and she's totally fine, but you do, do... see
2: her at the end of the episode, you oh, do, do you? see her okay.
3: walk up to Rodriguez, but it
2: happens very, very quickly. It's not it's not enough of a of an establishing shot that that
3: she actually came back. Um, and it and it, right as that has happened, McCoy's body has disappeared. All right, now here's the thing about McCoy's body disappearing: the
2: way it was originally written in the earlier outlines, a rock was going to move, and mechanical hands were going to reach out from under the rock to pull McCoy's body under the rock. Hmm. So first of all, that would have been too expensive
3: to do. So it was Roddenberry's idea to just make the body disappear. I am so impressed with Roddenberry's cheapness. And I mean that in the nicest way. It's okay. like he's come up with between the transporters and only talking about the shuttlecraft. And there's so many things or just reusing the cage where Roddenberry found a way on this very tightly budgeted show yep. to save a little bit of money. Um, and now Spock's starting to figure it out because he asked her. Kirk-
1: your thoughts just before you encountered the people you described. I was thinking about the academy.
3: And then we hear that music.
1: Hey, Jim baby,
0: I see you brought up reinforcements. Well, I'm waiting for you, Jimmy
2: boy.
3: I want to punch Finnegan, by the way. I think that's the idea. That's the idea is
2: that not only does Kirk want to punch Finnegan, we all want to punch Finnegan. And this is really the beginning of what turned out to be a five-minute fight scene that was edited by team number three on, on okay. the, the original series, but the main editor, his name was Fabian Torgman, and it was Torgman's idea during the structuring of this fight scene to have Finnegan cut. Kind of, he pops up out of nowhere, like while Kirk is like kind of chasing him. It was it was Fabian Torgman's idea to have Finnegan keep popping up out of nowhere to give it again. The, the the feeling of a of a fantasy and something otherworldly
3: well and, and it works so great and we should say we mentioned before but we're at vasquez rocks this is arguably the most important star trek location there is used over and over again it's used in next generation and of course It's in Generations. It's used a lot, you know.
2: Oh, oh, well, I mean, of course, I think I think we all know that the most famous episode in which it's used is Arena, the Mm -hmm. fight between Kirk and the Gorn. But it was used again in uh, uh, the the alternative factor. It was used in uh, Friday's Child, definitely used in Next Generation as well, was used in in Star Trek uh, 4 And Star Trek uh, and and J.J. Abrams paid homage uh, to it in Star Trek 2009 when he made he made the surface of Vulcan look like those jagged rocks and Voskis rocks.
3: So I liked it so much. I have actually filmed there. Um, Oh, wow. (laughs) I did. uh, I, I don't know if I've talked about it on this show, but I made one of the first web series ever made. So I made a a series called Siren in 2000. So long before there was YouTube or anything else. And it was about like an industrial thief. And we did a bunch of fight scenes and we destroyed a car and, um and anyway i in one of the episodes we went out and we shot at vasquez rocks oh that's so awesome! you shot if i
2: did you wear like a gold did, did you like reenact the scene from arena it's okay no. if you did i would have i know you would have
3: <laughs> i i it was it was really fun and special to be there and i was shooting totally illegally as much of that film much of that filming was and it was a lot of fun um and as you said, this fight scene goes on and on. And they yep. had to be thinking about John Ford's The Quiet Man with John Wayne's fight with Victor McLaughlin, particularly because of the Irish thing. Like it just because that, that is one of the most epic fight scenes in the history of film. It goes on and on and on. And this feels like it to some degree.
2: I, I think that that was a big inspiration for this fight between Has Kirk and Finnegan. Be. Yeah, it, it. I read that it, it definitely was an inspiration. They filmed the fight scene on days five and six and Shatner's stunt double actor's name is Paul Baxley and Bruce
3: Mars was Vince Dedrick. And you could see it. I mean, you could see it several times, although although Shatner does a fair amount of it. There's definitely some stuff he's doing. And, And what's funny, and again, this is this is the lightness of the episode is Kirk is asking him questions. But he's also smiling and he's also and there's like a moment where maybe Finnegan is going to answer and then Finnegan cheats or punches him. or And what's funny, and this is what's very much like the Quiet Man, is they keep getting knocked down and you think, oh, man, I guess that's the end of the fight. That's not the end. of the- No, no, it keeps going. Like, I, going. I love that. that
2: it does, It's not just that the fight keeps going. It's like they fight, then they stop. There's an interaction. Then they pick up the fight again and then they stop. And there's, there's an interaction. It's like they catch their breath. Then the fight keeps going, yeah. like like that's what's great about it, and and the the score again, Gerald Freed, like the score just kind of like you know it's like starts to come down, starts to slow down, but even the score is taking a breath because then the score picks up again when exactly. the fight. And by the way, I just realized that William Shatner's stunt double, Paul Baxley, that was the the, the dummy. That was who played the dummy oh. in the, the Black Knight uh, makes, costume.
3: Interesting. Makes sense. Um, <laughs> and I love the moments where where Finnegan says things like,
0: You're stupid underclassman. I've got the edge. I'm still 20 years old. Look at you. <laughs> You're an old man.
3: <laughs> he's early, in his early 30s and he's an old man. Thanks yeah. a lot. <laughs> um, and then Finnegan goes down the hill and he suddenly is in pain and says,
2: I,
0: I can't move my leg. My back is broken.
3: And Kirk, not too (laughs) sympathetically, says, Can you feel that? And of course, (laughs) Finnegan was just faking it, throws Kirk. The fight goes on. And at this point, it looks like he has knocked Kirk out kirk's head falls back his eyes are closed and finnegan says
1: sleep sweet jimmy boy sleep as
0: long as you like sleep forever Jimmy, forever and forever
2: <laughs> sleep forever that's kind of chilling isn't it it is sleep forever and by the way of course we have to mention that kirk did rip his shirt of as course. as is par for the
3: course because that's what kirk does and, and and it's also this is the end of the act, so the sleep forever makes us go. Oh my God, it's it's really bad. No, it's not because we come right back to where it was, and again the fight. Kirk gets up, and the fight keeps going. More Keep fights going. going. More, yeah. fight. More fight. More Keep fight. Keep going. <laughs> um, and then this is key. What's been
1: happening to my people? I never answer questions from plebes, Jimmy boy.
3: And Kirk defiantly says,
1: "I'm not a plebe."
3: This is his evolution from the person he was when he was a plebe to the person who is kicking the stuffing out of Finnegan today. This
1: is today. Fifteen years later. What are you doing here?
3: And this is the key to the whole thing. Yes, the key to the whole thing.
1: I'm being exactly what you expect me to be, me by
2: that moment, Kirk gets it. And he gets yeah. up, he's like, if you're gonna be exactly who I want you to be, then you're gonna get the tar kicked out of you by me right now. And mm-hmm. he lays a few, a few punches right, right on the old kisser and sends Finnegan flying. And Kirk is triumphant, victorious, and proud of it. Yes. That moment where he's just like, you know, leaning over uh, with his, with his shirt ripped and that look of like the childlike look of joy on his face, that he did something that he always wanted to do. He wanted to beat the crap out of Finnegan. And he finally did it. Even if it's not,
3: Really Finning it. And Spock says, Did you enjoy it, Captain?
1: Yes, I enjoyed it. After all these years.
3: And then he gets it. He gets it.
1: I did enjoy it. The one thing I wanted to do after all these years was beat the tar out of Finning.
3: We've now figured it out. We're meeting <laughs> yep. people and things that we happen to be thinking about at that moment. It's like it's kinda like, look, a bunch of us figured this out in the teaser when McCoy said it's like Alice in Wonderland and saw the rabbit. Yep but you guys have now caught up to
2: us.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We figured uh, it
2: out long before the crew of the Enterprise did, but that is because there's something in the air. They're all a little high. A
3: little bit (laughs) high. Um, And and then I love the moment where they go, yeah, it's really dangerous. We have to really control what we're thinking about. For instance, I mean, Rodriguez's tiger. (laughs) Oh, the tiger. Can we talk about the tiger? Let's talk about the tiger.
2: Okay, well, at one point, William Shatner was like, we got to have a scene where Captain Kirk wrestles with the tiger. Oh, really? And he he wanted a scene where, where Kirk wrestles with the tiger. So, of course, everybody was like, uh, you know, Bill, I think that's a really yeah. bad idea. So at one point, while they were filming the scene where Shatner was close by, he was like six feet away and the tiger got out of its uh, out of its uh, chain, you know, it, it like slipped oh, wow. off. And Kirk uh, Kirk Shatner jumped to safety. He like jumped on a prop to get out of its way. And then he came to his senses and said, yeah, maybe uh, wrestling with the tiger isn't such a bad, it, it's such. it really is a bad idea. But there was also a scene where they brought an elephant to the set. They were going to shoot a scene wow. with an elephant. The elephant was brought to the set, but they were running over and they were having other production setbacks. So they brought the elephant to the set. They never shot with the elephant. The elephant is not in shore leave. I don't know where that was going to be, but uh, it did get so far as to actually have the elephant on the set.
3: That's such a bummer because I don't know. I, I know – I, I have no idea what an elephant costs in 1966, nor do I know what an elephant costs today, but it ain't cheap. It ain't You got cheap. A, you get transport, you got food, you got trainers, you got a whole, there's a whole bunch of logistics you have to deal with, with bringing an elephant to set. Oh. By the way, the uh, Shatner wants to wrestle with the tiger thing. I, 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 maybe I'll cut this out. But one of the things I tell to my students is like, Is don't just do what your actors say. Actors will ask to do things that are really, really foolish. For instance, I had a student, she's shooting a film. It's the middle of the night and, and we're very conscious about safety. So we make sure they're not allowed to do stunts and they have to be very careful and they have to get permission to do various things. And in her script was the character gets hit by a car. And so we carefully went over, Okay, you're going to shoot a shot of the character and then you're going to shoot the car and then we're going to cut to something else and we're going to hear screeching tires and then cut to the aftermath. I see the film when it comes in and the actor gets hit by the car on camera. And I said, what did you do? Why did you do this? She said, well, the actor said he wanted to do it. And he said, why don't you just hit me with the car? And so they had someone hit, and they did it slow. But I'm like, this is exactly where someone's going to die. Mm-hmm, it's two mm-hmm. in the morning. You don't have trained people. <laughs> you just go, just hit me with the car. It'll be fine. <laughs> uh, and I love, by the way, now we're going to get all of it because we're going to have the plane come in with a strafing run. The samurai's going to jump up. I love Kirk just knocks him down. It's all coming to a head, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't not this again. Maybe we could just say she's high. But why is the yeoman smiling and happy as she's putting her dress away and getting her uniform back on? She literally just watched McCoy die.
2: Look, even while Kirk gets caught up in the moment of beating the crap out of Finnegan, I mean, he just lost his best friend. Like those emotions. I mean, look, it's it's episodic TV. You know, sixties. Sure. It's it's a different time. Uh,
3: they they all kind of moved on from that pretty fast. Yeah. But but you're right. I I do agree with you. And Don Juan shows up and starts to grab her. And Rodriguez and Sulu shows up. Sulu does some ridiculous pseudo martial arts pose. It's terrible. <laughs> um, and Don Juan gets out of there. Kirk and Spock shows up. And I love Kirk's.
1: Race front, everyone. Don't talk. Don't breathe. Don't think. You're of at attention.
3: And out
2: comes a dude in a robe. The first time I saw, I saw this episode... And the the dude came out in the robe. I thought it was Darren's boss from Bewitched. <laughs> I can <could> see that. <laughs> it looks just like the guy. I forget Similar. his name, uh, but it's actually uh, the actor's name is Oliver McGowan. Very very busy character actor from from that day. And uh, you know we get our answers and yep. a lot, loaded
3: loads of exposition here. Yep. Which is basically this is an amusement park and. And he's going like, we didn't understand that you didn't get it. We thought that you guys were just having fun. And it's a, they literally this very powerful race built this whole planet to give themselves a place to play. And I love that Sulu goes.
1: Play as advanced as you obviously are. And you still
3: play? And Kirk, in this very insightful way, says. Yes, play, Mr. Sulu.
1: more complex the mind, the greater the need for the simplicity of play.
3: Two things about this thing. Number one, this is being said by the dude who was refusing to go on shore leave. He is now saying, no, you need to play thing. Number two, next to this and the organians might be the coolest, super powerful race that we meet on star Trek. Mm. And I think they figured out what the Talosians didn't is that they have found a way to still, even though they're super advanced, to not ruin their society, to not become evil there or not become like the Charlie X people that seem distant and don't know how to love these people know how to party. They're Mm -hmm. having a good time. I would totally hang out with them. So, so
2: you know what, that's a really interesting way you put it. Like you're, you know, you get to the end of the episode and you find out that it's an amusement park. Oh, okay. And we just got to be careful with what we think about. But what we're really dealing with here is new life, to seek out new life and new civilizations. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned at the top of this episode, this is one of the few episodes where they actually are exploring an unknown, strange new world and they find new life. And this yep. life, as you absolutely correctly pointed out, is extremely advanced up there with the Organians, up there with the Telosians to an extent. And in some ways they're they're very, very advanced because – the the, the 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 race that is making the wrong decisions in this episode it's the crew of the enterprise yeah. it's it's our people it's just another aspect where you know like what kirk says in you know um, i can't wait to talk about this episode in the mercy you know you think you're the most powerful being yeah. in the galaxy it's humbling to find out that you're not
3: well and the thing too is as much as the organians seem very wise They don't see me having a lot of fun. This dude is totally smiling. He is having a ball. And And you know what? He is Timothy Leary.
2: Totally. Turn on, tune in, drop out, have fun. Just be careful. He is basically telling the Enterprise crew, turn on, tune in, and drop out.
1: That still doesn't explain the death of my ship surgeon. Possibly because no one has died
3: cut to (laughs) McCoy with two ladies on his arms in outfits, uh, that now why the two ladies man, by the way well, well yeah why
2: the two ladies like why doesn't he just walk out like why does it why does he have two women on his arm
3: and where where were they
2: before he walked out of the shadows
3: well i think a sober mccoy would know that he probably shouldn't have two women on his arms in front of the woman he was literally just romantically flirting with a few minutes before but hi mccoy didn't have that <laughs> thought so got- so this whole
2: episode is 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 on a different plane because our heroes our crew is high there's something in the air that is making them loopy that is it's acting like a drug that is making them make questionable decisions that is impairing their judgment. And that is why we are able to embrace so many of the things, uh, so many of the questionable motives and reactions that, that everybody has.
3: Well, here's what's this, here's where I'll disagree. I don't think they made questionable decisions. I think they make great decisions for themselves. Yes, there is things like getting killed by the night. That It was the not believing in the hallucination. That was the wrong decision. Right. Kirk beating the tar out of Finnegan was the right decision. And what I think is, and this is, i put this the right way. This is the thing about altered states. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not saying that I've ever experienced any of these things. I have, but... The thing is, is that sometimes they can teach you things that you couldn't get to another way. Mm -hmm. And that there is a reason why your favorite band in the world the beatles that their music changed when they started to experience some of these things because you can look at the world in a different way and the fact is my guess based on what i've seen i don't think mccoy would ever have flirted with barrows the way that he did and it was great that he flirted with her the way that he did i think having your inhibitions taken away seeing things different actually can help you connect with people in ways that you couldn't have before and sometimes you could take that experience and it will actually change who you are going forward you know there and this is the 60s there are a lot and there's a lot of horrible bad sides to doing drugs and we see what happens to those people from the 60s to the hippies as we moved in the early 70s things get real real bad but that doesn't mean they didn't learn some interesting things along the way absolutely I love all of the beat work between Barrows looking at McCoy and seeing the women and him kind of realize, and she goes over and it's like, no, he's mine. And one of the women goes to Sulu and the best choice is the other one goes to Spock.
2: Right. That's right, And best. Spock kind of reverts to that wise ass that we see at the mm-hmm. end of, uh, you know, like muds women. And, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know, it's, it's just a shame, you know, and I never thought about this before until watching it again. It's a shame that we never got to see Spock on the planet with Kirk and McCoy the whole time so that we could have seen a fantasy of Spock play out. So my question is for everybody listening, mm. is that if you were going to write your own scene of Spock in Shore Leave, what fantasy would you like to see Spock play out in the alternate version of Shore Leave. Let us know. Go to Enterprise Incident. our Facebook page
3: and comment and let us know what you think. I can't wait to hear people's responses. And I'm, I want to add one other thought to it. Yep. Is the fantasy from the human Mr. Spock or the Vulcan Mr. Spock? Ooh. Or some combination of both? Well,
2: that's a, the, we, I cannot wait. to. We cannot wait to hear and read the reactions that you post on our Facebook page. So please let us know.
3: And basically... Let's have some shore leave. He calls up to the ship. He's like, <laughs> tell tell the crew to prepare for the best shore leave they've ever had. But, but
2: Steve, <laughs> Kirk is not going back to the Enterprise. He's yeah. going to stay on the planet for a day or two with Ruth. Yep. The question is, What's he going to do with her?
3: <laughs> I I don't have a lot of questions about that. I I got a good feeling. I know what he's going to do with her. <laughs> um, and we're back on the bridge. And this one I I think this one is so nice is that you know, McCoy, Barrows, Sulu, Kirk, they come in, Kirk sits in the chair, they all gather around him. Spock comes up and the giggling and the happiness of what they all just experienced and Spock going,
0: "Did you enjoy your rest, gentlemen?" Yes, we
1: did, Mr. Spock. Thank huh? you. I think we did. Indeed, we did. Mr. Spock.
2: <laughs> and you know what? They're acting. They're still on a high. They're still yeah. on a high. They still totally. got the giggles. They still got the giggles from the shore planet. And by the way, this ending, you know, with everyone gathered around, Kirk sitting in the captain's chair, sharing a moment of levity, sharing a moment of humor. This is a quintessential Gene Kuhn Ending to a Star Trek episode. Yeah. The, these types of endings that we would see in Star Trek for like the next year and a half or so up and, you know, even beyond to the point after Gene Kuhn left the show, uh, because a lot of what he did stuck around that he wrote into the third season under a pseudonym named Lee Cronin. Hmm. but. Again, this is another big influence where Gene Kuhn added his made his mark on Star Trek by 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 ending most of the most of the episodes he produced on a on a moment of uh, levity and lightness and humor and warmth. So, Scott, what are the reactions? Did our did our cast and crew? What did people say about this episode? Well, Robert Justman, uh, our associate producer, when the episode was finished filming, he said, I think Shore Leave was probably the most entertaining Star Trek show we have produced to date. I am probably alone in my opinion, but I am telling the truth as I see it. Much more recently, Bruce Mars, who played Finnegan, said, God, it was so much fun. It was great on the set. The Forrest Kelly was extremely nice. Nimoy was a little removed very contained not outgoing but he was nice when you would talk to him I think that's kind of in line with a lot of people say about Nimoy was that he was he was in character like and I don't blame who can blame him what he was doing playing Spock was 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 a it was a demanding role and Mm -hmm. if if staying in character helped him achieve that goal then then he did the right thing
3: yeah Well, I'll tell you what sort of my thoughts on Shore Leave. I loved revisiting this with you. Um, I've always liked the episode. It's always been a lot of fun. I've already said this massive epiphany I've had about Kirk, and I'm really curious if what the evidence we see later on as we explore each of these episodes is going to support that idea or is going to dismiss it. And of course, I'd love to hear what people listening to the show think about who really was the young James D. Kirk. Here's the other thing I'll say about this episode is that I think this episode is about vacation. I say it's about dreams. It's about the Sabbath. It's about rest. It's about stepping out of the rules of society for a moment. And I think this is where the great, Creative moments happen. I think we go through our daily lives and they're rigid in the stuff that we have to do. I have to do this. I have to do this. And we behave the way we behave towards each other based on the rules of society. And we all obey them. And they work pretty well a lot of the time. And that there are some times where you step out of it. And I'm sure you've had this. You've had some late night conversation with a friend where it just suddenly gets honest, or you've had that moment out dancing or out um, doing something that's completely out of your comfort zone and something shifts in you and you look at things a different way. And, you know, and I have been to like, I've been to Burning Man several times and Burning Man, Yes, it has some of the altered things that we've discussed, but it's also a lot of people asking questions about, well, why do we do things the way we do them? And you think about all the barriers that exist between humans, like the barriers between McCoy and Barrows, that he manages to step across and do something that we never see McCoy do almost ever again in the whole series. And so I love that we get to see our crew indulge. They're not saving the galaxy. They're not repairing the warp drive or firing phasers or outsmarting a computer they're having fun they're dealing with themselves and i love that
2: Uh, i i completely agree with your assessment and and i just love that this is a very very unique episode of star trek there's no other episode like it even though they did entertain the idea at least theodore sturgeon Entertained the idea of a sequel episode. He submitted a story outline in 1968 called Shore Leave Two, but obviously that never that never happened. Although the Enterprise did return to the Shore Leave planet in the animated series episode called Once Upon a Planet, and we actually do see Theodore Sturgeon's uh, original outline where where you see mechanical hands reach out from under a rock to grab the bodies. But but my thoughts about this episode were really I, I I love it more than I ever did I appreciate its uniqueness more than I ever did i I scrutinize it a little more than some of the other episodes because there are a lot of questionable things in terms of like not seeing the warning signs as early as they should have but uh, you know just letting that go and appreciating the levity i I love the the confidence that that this episode conveys because like okay we get it we know what we know who our characters are you can this episode does exude so much confidence i love the score by gerald freed i love the, the the locations you know africa usa and of course vasquez rocks it's an it's an open episode and it's full of so many ideas that i never even considered your idea that they're that they're they're being drugged in some subtle way and that makes such great sense And that holds up under more scrutiny than anything else. And and just like so many episodes we have discussed now on enterprise incidents, surely is an episode that
3: I've always enjoyed, but now I love it a whole lot more. And we would love to hear your thoughts on shore leave. Have you always loved it? Did you hate it? Has your opinion changed over time? Of course, we want to hear your answers to our questions that we're posting on Facebook. So do a search for Enterprise Incidents on Facebook. You can follow the show at Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. And please subscribe to the show, which you can do on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. We, the reviews have been absolutely incredible and we're so grateful and touched for everything you've written. And that means we just want to be grateful and touched more often. So if you would please write more of them, it would make us very happy. <laughs> we also love to hear your comments on YouTube and Scott, if people wanted to reach you on social media, how would they find you?
2: Well, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, nice and easy at MovieMance with a TZ at the end. You can also check out my YouTube channel, which is just Scott Mance. But uh, make sure you follow us on Enterprise Incidents uh, you know, on all the different social platforms. Make sure you do check out our Facebook page, which is getting more and more followers. We love and we are so grateful for the interaction and the comments we've been getting, which we've been reading here on Enterprise Incidents. So So please check out our Facebook page. And like Steve said, please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. Let us know what you think. Steve, where can people
3: follow you and where else can we see your work? Well, they can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. As I've mentioned many times, the cinephiles is my podcast, my other podcast, which Scott has appeared on. If you like fun, comedic episodes like Shore Leave, you might want to check out some of the the, one of the greatest comedies of all time, Some Like It Hot. We did The Birdcage and my favorite comedy of all time, we did with special guest Scott Mance. And that, of course, is Airplane. So <laughs> that's at the Cinephiles. But once you're done listening to some Cinephiles episodes, you might want to come back next week for another adventure with the crew of the Enterprise. What's going to happen next week? Wait, did you say, did you say Airplane? Because after the episode we just talked about, surely... You can't be serious. (laughs) Oh, yes. Well played.
2: That joke was 55 years in the making, ladies (laughs) and gentlemen. As for next week on Enterprise Incidents, I am very excited to talk about an episode that I have always loved. Another episode that feels very, very unique and may just have influenced so much of what happened in the next generation and beyond and is also an episode that features one of the all-time great guest starring performances and that episode is the squire of gothos so please join us next time on enterprise incidents and until then keep going boldly